Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. Welcome back. I had planned to record this episode this past Monday night and release it on my normal Tuesday morning schedule, but I started coming down with my daughter's cold over the weekend and I just was exhausted last night. So I just had to table recording the podcast until this evening and it will be released a little bit later. I was actually supposed to get an episode out last week, but I had been away on a girls weekend with a group of friends who we've started a we call ourselves the Jane Austen Book Club and they're the dearest group of women and we had not seen each other in a year and we went to a local theater's production of Pride and Prejudice and stayed overnight at a lake house together and we spent time reading and catching up and I just decided to prioritize spending time with those dear ladies since it's been a year since we've been together. Now on to today's story, Hans Christian Andersen's The Nightingale. It is many years since the story I am going to tell you happened, but that is all the more reason for telling it, lest it should be forgotten. Hans Christian Andersen, The Nightingale. I share this quote because the very nature of fairy tales are a gift. They remind us in our busy, pragmatic world of the richness of beauty and truth, so that both of them are not forgotten by us. They remind us of the hope of good triumphing over evil. They teach us to hope in a world where all things are put right. In his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien says of the fairy tale's trademark happy ending, Consolation of fairy tales has another aspect than the imaginative satisfaction of ancient desires. Far more important is the consolation of the happy ending. Almost, I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. At least I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function. But the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, 
giving a fleeting glimpse of joy. Joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Now, I've said all this and I quote that beautiful passage from On Fairy Stories because I've had the idea of doing another series on fairy tales for a while. A couple of years ago, I did a feature on the Snow Queen and I have done Cinderella in the past and and paired it with A Little Princess. But the time to do another series on it was never right. And so I had to put it aside for a while. And now it's time. Thanks to an interview I have coming up this week. I'm very excited about it. And while I was doing research for the interview, I started reading Vegan Groins. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. My apologies if not. His book, Tending to the Heart of Virtue. He has a chapter in his second edition on beauty, and it features two of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales, The Nightingale and The Ugly Duckling. Now, I love Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. The Snow Queen, I featured it before. It may be one of my all-time fairy tales. I love that story so much. I've read it to my daughter twice, and I just love the message that it gives to children. It's absolutely beautiful. But I wasn't as familiar with the Nightingale. I had this vague memory of the details of the story. I have either seen an animated version of the story or read one a long time ago. And so I had never paid much attention to it. And it wasn't until after reading Vegan Groin's argument of its many virtues I felt compelled to read it again, and I was completely enchanted with what I read. It's a story I can't stop thinking about. I was on the phone with my mom today, this afternoon, talking about it because there's so many layers and so many things, so many insights into human nature and the role of beauty in our life. And it's so many Christian themes within this story that. It's going to be hard for me to just talk about the few things that I have <laughs> that I have decided to talk about today because I could go on and on about this story. I love it. Again, I'm going to say there's so much to it, so please read it. I'm going to give you a little summary of it now. The Nightingale takes place in China at the court of the emperor. He is rich, a lover of beauty, and his palace and gardens reflect this. The beauty of his court and grounds are renowned in his neighboring countries. One day, the emperor reads in a book praising his magnificent palace and gardens that the finest and most beautiful thing in his lands is the song of the nightingale who lives in his forest. The emperor is surprised. He has never heard of this nightingale, and he immediately summons it to his court. He sends the men of the court to go and look for the nightingale, and a kitchen maid is the one who knows where it is and leads them to it. The nightingale gladly comes, and everyone at the court, including the emperor, are entranced by the nightingale's song. The emperor gives the nightingale titles, and he compels the nightingale to stay. One day, the emperor of Japan gifts the emperor with a mechanical nightingale made of silver and gold, bedecked with priceless jewels, who sings as sweetly as the real nightingale. Soon the mechanical nightingale replaces the real nightingale in the court, and the real nightingale quietly slips away back to the forest, unnoticed and practically forgotten by all who praised its song. The years go by, the 
the mechanical nightingale begins to wear out. The emperor ages, and death comes for him at last. As he is on his deathbed, tormented by the remembrance of his failures and misdeeds in life, he implores the mechanical nightingale to sing for him, but his cry falls on deaf ears. The trinket cannot wind itself, and there is no one else to do so. It is then that the real nightingale returns, holding death back with its beautiful song and staying by the emperor's side until he is restored. As I've already said in the beginning, there is just so much in this little fairy tale. In his essay, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What's to Be Said, C.S. Lewis praises the form of the fairy tale. And of its many delights, he counts its brevity one of the most compelling. This is exactly what one finds in the Nightingale. It speaks volumes in its spare and calculated words. I could spend much time extolling the many points of this magnificent story, but I will take my cue from it and be brief and highlight only a few. One of the things that stood out so much to me, and it's thanks to that chapter in Tending to the Heart of Virtue, it's how beauty is woven throughout this story and the importance of beauty, and especially the call and the transforming work of beauty. There's a quote I want to share. So the quote is, after a description of the beautiful gardens and the palace of the emperor, and it gets to the part where the, the nightingale is introduced to the reader. And it says, Among these trees lived a nightingale, which sang so deliciously that even the poor fisherman, who had plenty of other things to do, lay still to listen to it when he was out at night drawing in his nets. Heavens, how beautiful it is, he said. But then he had to attend to his business and forgot it. The next night when he heard it again, he would again exclaim, Heavens, how beautiful it is. Travelers came to the emperor's capital from every country in the world. They admired everything very much, especially the palace and the gardens. But when they heard the nightingale, they all said, This is better than anything. So I share that quote for two reasons. One is just how the fickle mind can forget beauty so soon after encountering it. As soon as you walk away, you've forgotten what's been before you. Just like the fisherman, he forgets his beautiful song and he's distracted by the cares of the world. And again, I want to call to mind the quote from the beginning. Hans Christian Andersen says at the beginning, he's retelling the story so it's not forgotten. And we see within the story itself so quickly how these beautiful things can be forgotten if we don't tend to it as we should. We need to have it constantly before us so we don't forget. Along with that, the beauty beckons people to it. The nightingale's song beckons people to encounter it. It beckons the fishermen. It beckons people from all these other countries to come and to hear its song. It's, it is like a gospel call for people to come and hear the good news, the beauty. But it's also interesting because the sound of the nightingale causes the beauty of even the palace to pale in comparison to its song. The emperor, though, is unaware of this treasure in his own backyard until he reads about it in a book. He has no awareness of it 
until he encounters it in a book. Now, when the emperor reads this, he is very upset and displeased. And a little bit of arrogance comes through because he says, I haven't heard of this. Why haven't I heard of this? And he immediately summons the nightingale to him. He sends his men of the court and he says to go and find this nightingale for me and bring it to me. But the problem is that no one in the palace knows where to find the nightingale. None of them have heard the nightingale. None of them are aware of it. They've heard nothing about it. But it's a poor kitchen maid who leads them to the nightingale. She tells how the song of the nightingale revives and comforts her. The gentleman of the court can't recognize the voice of the nightingale, they mistake the songs of other animals for its voice. When they finally see the nightingale, they are surprised that it's so homely. It isn't beautiful in appearance, and this is before hearing it sing. And it reminded me, just as a side note, of the scripture that talks about when Jesus comes, that he has no form of loveliness. I can't think of the exact reference right now or the exact words, but it's, again, this nightingale who is like a Christ-like character throughout the story has no form of beauty that would draw anyone to it. But when it sings, when they hear the voice, they are entranced by the nightingale and they invite slash summon him to sing at the palace that night. Now the nightingale says to the men of the court that its voice sounds loveliest in the forest among the trees, but it still goes with the men of the court. And that is where the emperor first encounters its song. But again, back to the point is that just this little song of the nightingale is enough hidden away where none of the people of the court have ever heard it. It's only for those who have ears to hear, those who are seeking it, that they hear this beautiful voice. And the news of it is spreading throughout the world. And people are coming just to hear its voice. So it's calling the voice of beauty is calling people to it. And I just love that. It reminds me of how just the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the work of Christ, how it calls us to him, how by his spirit we are drawn and we encounter a beauty unlike anything we've ever known, as do the people in the story. Once the nightingale comes to the court, in a way, it's imprisoned. He tells the nightingale, he kind of invites the nightingale to stay, but he also says that this is when you will sing for me. This is when you are allowed to go outside. You will be accompanied by this many people. And so I was reading that and I was thinking, this is so much how we try to control things. And it made me think of how often we will try to harness the power of God. Like we try to control him and it has to be on our terms. And so the emperor is making it on his terms. He wants the nightingale to perform for him, to be at his beck and call. And he's in a way trying to tame the naturally wild nature of the nightingale. And the other point I wanted to make is how beauty can be stifled when we try to control it for our own use. So along with trying to tame the nature of the nightingale, 
The emperor tries to keep it in one place. He doesn't share it outside of the court besides having it performed for people during his time when he says it's okay. It's really only for the few or when he's willing to share it with other people. He does share it, so there is that. But the nightingale doesn't have the freedom to go out and and bring the beauty to people. It is all under the schedule of the emperor and what he deems as the time and the place for it. And it's never intended to be that way. From the beginning of the story, the nightingale is, is free and Anyone who will stop and listen has the freedom to hear its voice. So this whole trying to control beauty is just very upside down. And in the end, the lust to possess beauty on your own terms leads to the abandonment of the nightingale for a man-made creation. One strength of the story is that it doesn't downplay the beauty of the created nightingale. And when I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh, this is so much like technology. It just stood out to me so much. And I sometime I want to go and explore when Anderson wrote this story and what was going on in the world, because I'm wondering if it coincides with the Industrial Revolution. It had to have, if, if I have the right time in history. And I'm just wondering if that had some sort of inspiration for him. And I, and I don't know, I have not done any research. This was just something that came to mind as I was reading it. But within that, I'm, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is technology. But again, the strength of the story is it doesn't downplay the good of technology, of what's been created by man. There are good things about this creation. There are good things about technology. There, there are. Now, within the story, the mechanical nightingale is beautiful. It's bedecked with jewels. It's like the real nightingale in almost every way. It can sing. It can mimic the beautiful songs of the nightingale. It's not wild, so there's no fear of it escaping the emperor's palace. The mechanical workings of the artificial nightingale are a marvelous work of skill and craft. It says in the story, I love this one part where it refers to even when you open it up, you can see the beauty of the mechanics of this nightingale. So there is a strong case for it to replace the real nightingale. But there was this one, you know, you get to the end of the story and it's, it's what's going to be the next point that I'll share is the real nightingale has this one advantage over the one that's cast of gold and jewels. There's probably more than one, but what stood out to me is it's only the beauty of the real nightingale's voice that can subdue and turn death away. Again, as a Christian, I'm thinking of of Jesus and how he turns death away for us. He is the only one who can. And I love this moment in the story. This nightingale has a soul. The other nightingale, the one that's been created by man, has no soul. I was talking to my mom about that. And this is a bit of a side note this afternoon of like the things that we create with our hands don't have a soul. The things that God creating us, we have a soul because he has given that to us. It's something that we, we can't create a soul. And how amazing and beautiful that work of creation by God is. So back to the emperor dying and the the nightingale being able to turn death away. As the emperor lays dying, he pleads with the artificial nightingale to sing to ward off the voice of his failures and misdeeds and his fear of death. But his cries go unheard. 
There is no one to wind up the artificial bird for him. As I've said, this bird has no soul. It can't wake up and start singing for the emperor. Also, the artificial nightingale, because of this, is incapable of love. It can be loved, but it cannot love in return. It can perform, but it cannot give sacrificial love. It has no free will to love and must be wound up to sing. And in the emperor's hour of need, the mechanical nightingale fails him. But the real nightingale comes when it hears of the emperor's need. It comes to bring comfort and hope as the emperor faces death. It is a companion to him in that hour. He is not alone because of the nightingale. And in the end, death itself falls under the spell of the nightingale's song and returns to his own garden. And the nightingale stays by the emperor's side until he is restored. And so the story ends in the right order. It has that beautiful eucatastrophe that Tolkien is talking about. And with that turning, the emperor has a change of heart and he allows the nightingale to come and go. And because the beautiful voice is not just for the emperor or the court, but for all who hear it, from the kitchen maid to the poor fisherman and peasant. I want to end with a little quote from the end of the story. So the nightingale says to the emperor, I can't build my nest and live in this palace, but let me come whenever I like. Then I will sit on the branch in the evening and sing to you. I will sing to cheer you and to make you thoughtful too. I will sing to you of the happy ones and of those that suffer. I will sing about the good and the evil which are kept hidden from you. The little singing bird flies far and wide to the poor fisherman and to the peasant's home, to numbers who are far from you and your court. I love your heart more than your crown. And yet there is an odor of sanctity around the crown too. I will come and I will sing to you. There's just so much in that paragraph and, oh, I could go on and on and on about it, but I won't. But I just a couple of things closing up is that the nightingale is the mouthpiece for everyone in the kingdom. And he comes and he, he shares with the emperor and he, and he does this in order to keep the emperor's heart tender and to be compassionate for those who are in his kingdom. I love the line, I love your heart more than your crown. And there's just a world wrapped up in those words because the nightingale loves the emperor for who he is, imperfect as he is. And can there be anything more lovely than that to be loved for who we are and that be enough? The nightingale's love is so much like the love that Christ has for us. And I cannot imagine a more perfect ending to the story. Oh my, there are so many treasures in these brief stories we call fairy tales. And when we stop and listen, there is no end to how they can enrich our life. May you read this tale and fall in love with it as I have. Well, that is all for this week. I am very excited to record an upcoming episode where I will be interviewing someone about fairy tales. And that is coming up this week that I will interview them. And I'm very excited about it. And so I should have that episode up next. And, and then after that, I have a couple of more fairy tales that I want to read and share with you. 
and hopefully there will be some delightful and surprising insight to all of them. In the meantime, if you would like to connect, you can email me at beth at a wellreadlife.com. I love to hear from you. Even if I'm sometimes slow in responding, I will do so. And I love having bookish chats with people. I've had a few lately and it's been great fun. One in particular, we share a love of very obscure book. So it's it's been fun to, to talk about that uh, with her. So I love to hear from you, as I said. So please do send me an email and we can have a little bookish conversation together. You can also find me on Instagram at wellreadbeth. I don't post a lot, but I do check my DMs. So if you send me a message, I will get back to you as soon as I can. A couple of times people have sent me messages and it has not gone into my main DM. It's another folder. So I sometimes miss those and I apologize if I'm very late in responding, because sometimes it doesn't go to the primary inbox or mailbox, whatever it's called. So I apologize for that. I'm trying to be more aware and, and watch out for that. I hope that you are all enjoying the beautiful beginning of spring. We've had some lovely days lately, so I hope that you are enjoying that. I am trying not to be too sour about the end of winter. I do love spring, but we have a lot of heat in Georgia and I'm not relishing the thoughts of that. But in the meantime, I'm enjoying immersing myself in the world of fairy tales and I hope you will too. Until next time. 